Jesus demands a response. So Matthew chapter 2. It is. Yeah. Are you guys able to hear me through the speakers? Okay. Do you want me to switch to pulpit? Okay. All righty. Okay. Let me just adjust this. Difficulties. All right. So again, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Title of the sermon is Jesus Demands a Response. When you are there, if you are able to physically rise for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. So Matthew the Apostle writes this. He says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me, so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising, and it led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning. We ask you to be with us as we look closely at your word, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to understand exactly what's in your word, and that uh, it would make us adore you more, Lord God, that we would, we would worship you, Lord Jesus, with everything we have. We pray that those who don't know you would come to know you, that you would call them out of darkness into life, out of death into eternal life, Lord. We pray that. Uh, Lord, please don't let me mess this up. Remove me as much as possible, and may you be glorified um, in the preaching of your word, and and we know that you say it will not return to you uh, void and vain. And so we just pray uh, that you'd be with us this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, there are many things in life that demand a response. If a man asks for a woman's hand in marriage, it demands a response. When a job interview is over and the potential employer offers you a job, the job offer demands a response. When you buy a car and the salesman tries to sell you a warranty and gap insurance, it demands a response. When your kids get really sick and someone urges you to take them to the hospital because you're kind of wavering, their urging demands a response. It goes without saying there are many things that We come across all the time that demand a response. It is common human experience. And yet, when it comes to the most important thing ever, people act as if they don't have to give a response. Which, by the way, not giving a response is giving a response. It's a response that says this most important thing ever isn't worth my effort to respond. Now listen, if so many lesser things in life demand a response, then so too does the greatest thing. 
So what is the greatest thing? It's a person. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Savior, the Messiah. And that's what our text is all about. The main point or the, the timeless truth from our text is this. It's that the coming of the Messiah demands a response from all people. The coming of the Messiah demands a response from all people. Okay, so if that's true, then what are the typical responses that people make to the fact that Jesus is real? Okay, Matthew's going to show us three different responses from three different groups. And, and here's the responses. There's going to be belief. It's the first response. There's going to be fearful rage as the second response. There's going to be indifference as the third response. Now, I must say that the text does not um, simply roll from, from one response to the next. It doesn't start with belief and then move to fearful rage and then move to um, indifference. Uh, that's not how Matthew arranges it. Instead, the responses are all going to be intertwined. We're going to see them together in the way that Matthew unfolds this. He unfolds the text in three scenes, okay? So these scenes are as follows. First, the Magi come to Jerusalem. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And then we're going to see Herod's reaction. That's the second thing. And then third, the Magi go to Bethlehem. And in those three scenes of this text, we will see those three kinds of responses. So as we continue to move through the amazing gospel of Matthew, we now come to the second chapter. We are still in the beginning material of the book. As I mentioned in the first sermon, the Gospel of Matthew has five main sections. And in between the, or those five sections surrounding them are two bookends, a bookend at the beginning and a bookend at the end. We're still at the one in the beginning. And this beginning bookend needs to do a couple things. First, it needed to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And with such an announcement, two questions need to be answered. Who? And where? Well, all good origin stories require you to answer who and where. And in chapter 1, we received the answer of who. So I'm going to remind us of what we saw. Who is the Messiah? The answer was nothing less than marvelous. The Messiah, according to chapter 1, is the son of David, son of Abraham. He is the beginning of a new creation and a new humanity. He is the one that was promised, the deliverer that was promised in Genesis 3.15 that would fix everything that was broken in the fall. As the promised king, he also has the right lineage. He must come from Abraham, but also from King David. So this genealogy in chapter 1 takes us from Abraham to David to show us he's got the right lineage. God promised David that the Messiah would come from his descendants. And so then the genealogy continues from David to the exile of the Israelites into Babylon. And then it continues after that from the exile up to the time of Jesus' birth. But what's interesting, and I pointed this out last time, what's interesting is the genealogy carries us to Joseph, not to Jesus. Because the text goes out of its way to tell us Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. In fact, Jesus has no biological father, which is the most important fact about who he is. Okay, then that's what the second half of chapter 1 showed us. It answered for us this. Jesus is the Son of God. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary and created within that womb the humanity of the Messiah. Now, this was necessary because the Messiah was not going to be a normal human. In eternity past, God the Father determined he would send the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to enter his own creation as a man. Therefore, humanity needed to be added to his divinity. So in a single person, you have two natures subsist. 
In the person of Jesus Christ, you have the divine nature and the human nature, not confused, not mixed, but the two natures subsisting in the one person. And I know that seems complicated, but it is what the Bible teaches, and it's what the early church made clear in their creeds. They wanted to make sure nobody got this wrong. Now, in order for that to happen, for there to be this God-man, for there to be this God-man, there had to be... You had to have the Holy Spirit make the humanity and unite the humanity to the divine person of the second person of the Trinity. Why was this necessary? Why the God-man? It's because the Savior had to be a man, but he had to be more than a regular man. He had to be God and man. See, a man who's only a man could not absorb the infinite wrath of God that is due to all sinners. He would disintegrate. But a man that is at the same time the eternal God could absorb every ounce of the wrath and yet still feel it as a man and yet not be disintegrated by it. Additionally, there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies that make it clear he's not a regular man. His throne lasts forever. He reigns forever. He sits next to the Father in heaven with glory, yet reigns from Jerusalem on earth. He walks on the clouds. He approaches the Ancient of Days with blazing glory. That's God, but then he's a man, right? The the, the Old Testament paints a picture of the Messiah that's both. The prophet Isaiah, as we saw last time, calls him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah calls him Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Micah says his origin is from eternity, meaning he has no origin. He always was. So, the Messiah must be God. But... If he's going to be the heir of David and the heir of Abraham, he must also be a man. And thus, you get the God-man. And that's what chapter 1 was meant to show us. That the Holy Spirit is the one who, who brought these two natures together in the one person. So Jesus was descended from David through Mary, but he didn't have the royal line through Mary. And that's why Joseph, who does have the royal line, marries Mary and then adopts Jesus. When Jesus is born, Joseph names him, Joseph circumcises him, and in Judaism, that is you saying, this is my son, he inherits my title, he inherits all that is mine. And so that's what chapter 1 showed us, who he is, right? He is the Messiah, he is the God-man. So with all that, I think we're ready to to move into our text because now Matthew's going to take us to the where. Chapter 1 shows us the what, okay? But now we're going to see where the Messiah is, because the Old Testament tells us that as well. It doesn't only tell us who he'll be, it tells us where he will be born. And Matthew's going to make it clear, he's going to make it clear that Jesus is without a doubt the Messiah we've been waiting for, because he's the right guy, the who is right, and the where is right. And so because of that, because Jesus is who he is, Matthew's also going to show us he demands a response. And throughout these scenes, we're going to see these responses. So let's look at the first scene. The Magi come to Jerusalem. In verse 1, it says this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Now there's some important details that Matthew gives us to let us know when this happened. Remember, chapter 1 says who and how, like who he is, how he was conceived. But now Matthew's going to tell us where, but he's also going to tell us when. Okay, let's look at the when again. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, that's the where, of Judea, when? In the days of King Herod. That helps us narrow things down a bit. Herod became the undisputed ruler of Israel in the year 37 B.C., and he continued to reign until he died in the year 4 B.C., 
Now, I'm going to clear up some confusion that some people might have. If Herod died in 4 BC, that means Jesus was not born in 1 AD. He was not born in 1 AD. He was actually born either in 5 or 4 BC, a little before Herod died. So then you might be thinking, well, why is our calendar all messed up? Well, who do you think made the calendar? Do you think Jesus just showed up out of the womb and said, here's the calendar? No, it was a guy in the year 525, 500 years later, named Dionysus Exegus. He was a churchman. He's the one, 530 years later, who comes up with this calendar. And he was off. Hey, I appreciate what he tried to do. Let's divide history before Christ's birth and after his birth. Anno Domini, the coming of the Lord. But he got it wrong by five years. Now, before you decide to throw cabbage at him in the new Jerusalem, he was only off by five years, which isn't that bad. So look, it's really the year 2027, but don't go change your calendars. Point is, Jesus was born, (laughs) you know, a couple years before our calendar says he was born. With that little piece of who wants to be a millionaire trivia out of the way, let's get back to the text. We read that after Jesus was born, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. So we have to ask, who were these guys? And there's a lot of debate. Now, the word wise men in the Greek is magoi, which is often translated magi, which is probably the best translation. And magi is a negative thing. In both the Old and New Testament, these are sorcerers and astrologers that are all wrapped up in paganism. They were always spoken of in a bad sense. They're not good people. But in Matthew, the same word is applied to these men who came to Jerusalem looking for baby Jesus, and Matthew's going to present them in a positive light, okay? And so that's what kind of makes this confusing for people, and I'll do my best to make it unconfusing. But let me shoot down one thing you might be thinking. There is nothing in the text that shows they were three kings. So I'm sorry, the Christmas song is wrong. I ruined something else for you. Also, there's no reason to think their names were Belshazzar, Casper, and Melchior, Nothing. Nothing that tells us that. There's nothing that tells us there were three. I know I'm ruining your nativity sets, right? There's nothing that tells us they were three. The word magoi is plural, which means there was at least two, but there could have been 10. There could have been 50. All we know is there's more than one, okay? And so the point is, what we know for sure is Matthew calls them magoi, which would definitely get the eyebrows of his original Jewish audience to raise up a little bit. Like, wait a minute, sorcerers, astrologers coming from the east? To come to the Messiah? And then in verse 2, they declare why they've arrived in Jerusalem. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star rising and have come to worship him. Now, there are some important details from verse 2 that cry out to us. First, these magi know that the Messiah has been born. They know also that the Messiah comes from the Jews. So they headed a very long distance to get to the country of the Jews, Israel. But how did they know this? How did they know that the Messiah is Jewish and he's been born? Now, people speculate all day long and they come up with a lot of interesting things. I suggest just listen to the text. It tells you. They say, quote, for, which means they're given the reason, for we saw his star at its rising, and have come to worship him. That is their answer for why they know Jesus has been born. So yeah, you heard that right. They knew the Messiah was born because of a star. It's a very simple answer, but people often want to make it more complicated. And what do I mean? Well, my favorite story, complicated story, the one that I wish was true, 
is that these guys, these magi, are the descendants of the magi that was trained by Daniel, the prophet, 600 years earlier in Babylon. And David gave them clues as to the precise, I mean, Daniel gave them clues as to the precise time when the Messiah would be born. And it was passed on father to son, father to son. And now it's the time and these magi know it. And so then they come to Jerusalem. Now, as cool as that all is, I think it's doubtful. In the book of Daniel, the Magi were presented as Daniel's enemies, not as friends. They were usually the villains. And most importantly, if that's what happened, Matthew could have easily told us this. In fact, the Jewish audience would have loved that answer. They'd be like, oh, it's fulfilling prophecy. Instead, Matthew, when he gives the reason how they knew the Messiah was born, he says it's because they saw a star. Okay, so Matthew's not making this easy on this, on us. Now, based on what it says, I think these were regular pagans that looked to the stars. Astrologers, just like the word normally means. Now, I'll answer why in a little bit God would use guys like this for such an important thing. But at least let me just give a hint up front. We, look, God will call the pagan peoples from the world away from their paganism. They will have to walk away from their life lived against God and instead walk to the Messiah in faith. They will have to bow their hearts and live their lives before him and worship him. And then they'll be forgiven and saved by him. And listen, people like that won't keep looking to the stars. Okay, so salvation, who gets saved? People who are at first unsaved, right? That's what it presupposes. That's why God is starting with these guys. And, and there's going to be more to it than that. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But I want to deal with the star. Because this is, people scratch their head over this. Okay, If they came because of a star, question number one, what's up with the star? Question number two, why would God use a star to get the attention of astrologers? Let me take the first question. What's up with the star? People speculate all day long about the star. Some people think it was Halley's Comet. Okay, which would have passed the earth in the years 12 and 11 BC. That's way too early for Jesus' birth, so you could rule that one out. Others think it was the Jupiter-Saturn conjunction that appeared three times in the years 7 and 6 BC. And what that means is Jupiter and Saturn kind of lined up and looked like a really big bright light. Okay? And Jupiter was said to be the star of the king, and Saturn was thought to be the star of the Jews. It represented the Sabbath. And so they said, ah, oh, these two stars coming together, it's signifying a Jewish king. Now, as good as that option all sounds, 7 or 6 BC is still too early. So the third option is Chinese philosophers recorded a comet in the year 5 and 4 BC, which matches the timeline, but the problem is this comet was not mentioned by anybody in Jesus' part of the world. They weren't tracking it. So none of these work. Also, when we get to the end of the text, okay, we're going to see that our star does not behave like a comet. It doesn't even behave like a star. What I could say right now, keep you in suspense, is these guys saw something. They saw something in the heavens and it indicated to them the Messiah was born, and we'll talk a little bit more about it when we get to the third scene. Now, as to the second question, why would God use a star to signify to astrologers that the Messiah has been born? Well, I think the answer is most easily and obviously found in the Old Testament itself. Remember what I've been telling you. Matthew keeps showing that Jesus is not just the fulfillment of predictions. He's the fulfillment of history. Patterns that get set in the Old Testament paint a picture of who Jesus is and what he will do. And we see the same thing here. 
When you go back to the Exodus, when God brought Israel out of Egypt and started leading them towards the promised land, there was an opponent, a pagan king named Balak. He wanted to stop them, so he hired a sorcerer from the east, a man named Balaam, to come and work his magic and put a curse on Israel. Yet God would not allow this sorcerer, Balaam, to curse Israel. God made Balaam bless Israel four times. So what you have is this sorcerer from the east who is called to curse them, but God turns the curse into a blessing. And in the process, God actually had this magi, Balaam, and let me stop there for a second. In the first century, the Jews believed Balaam was the world's first magi. They believed the sorcerers in Egypt that opposed Moses were Balaam's sons. So this is the alpha magi. Okay, to Matthew's audience, that's, that's what they think when they think of Balaam. So God has this, this first magi, Balaam, okay, utter a prophecy about the Messiah. Back in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. As God is making this ancient eastern magi bless Israel, he has him say this. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shephites. And then, of course, he goes on and says he's going to, the Messiah is going to rule all of Israel's enemies. Okay? But the key is a star will come from Jacob. And clearly the star refers to a ruler because he is also said to be a scepter from Israel, which is the king's scepter. Now, again, by the first century, everybody understood Numbers chapter 24 to be a prophecy about the Messiah. It's a messianic prophecy. In fact, there's going to be a fake Messiah around the year 140 who is named Son of the Star. That's what they call him, Barcoba, because they're going off this prophecy. Everybody knew this prophecy was about the Messiah. But here, here's the interesting thing. You have this promised one, this Messiah, okay? And you have this Eastern Magi give this prediction, and uses the word star, talks about his star, a star will come from Jacob. And then 1,400 years later, other Eastern Magi see a star, but it's not just any star. Look what they call the star. They call it, quote, his star. Verse 2 again, quote, we saw his star at the rising. It's possessive. This star belongs to a person. It is this person's star. It calls back to them. It refers to them. It's a star that belongs to the promised one. And what makes it even more clear is that Matthew, the Greek words he uses are identical to the Greek words used in Numbers 24, verse 17 in the Septuagint about the star. Identical. The, the structure is the same. So Matthew's making it clear that these Eastern Magi are seeing the star predicted by one who was the first of their kind so long ago. So what we have in the text is we have irony. You have an Eastern Magi predict the star in the past, and now you have Eastern Magi in the present who are the ones who see it first. They see it when it arrives. And rather than try to destroy Israel like Balaam did, there's a reversal here. These Magi are going to travel at their own cost so they could be the first to bow down and worship this king. Balaam wanted to curse Israel when he couldn't directly. He found a backward way. He was an enemy. But these Magi, these people, all these years later, God is showing there's a reversal. Okay? They're going to be doing the opposite of what their, their forebearer did. 
Okay? And what God is doing is he's using this event to forecast the truth that through the Messiah Jesus, God is not going to just save Israel. He's going to save people from all nations. And he starts with peoples who were initially opposed to God. But now he's showing through them he means to bring all kinds of people into covenant with him through this child who was born, through the Messiah. The star signifies all that. That is why it's a star. Okay? That is why it's happening this way. It is fulfilling types and patterns from the Old Testament. Now, we do still need to talk about the nature of the star, but I'm going to save that, as I said, until the text gives us more clues later. So at this point, we have the Magi explained. We have the star kind of explained. Now I want to highlight uh, one other big thing in the text so far. The words of the Magi, where they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? That would have been a shocking statement. For two reasons. First, the Jews have not had a man born king of the Jews since the days of Jehoiakim over 600 years earlier when the Babylonians carried them off into captivity. There's been no king since then. To make the claim that one has been born king of the Jews is to make the claim that for the first time in 600 years, a king of David's line has been born. And he's not appointed a king. He is born with that status. He is already king. David has had a lot of descendants after, you know, 600 B.C., but none of them were born a king. Joseph is a descendant, but he was not born a king. Jesus, what is telling us, is already born as this, with the status of a king. And so that's huge. It means the exile that ended the kingship is now over. The king has come back finally. And without a doubt, in addition to this theological statement, it's a political statement as well. King Herod was called the king of the Jews, but not by the Jews. In fact, even the title king of the Jews is what the Gentiles call the ruler of the Jews. Okay, But nobody called anybody king of the Jews until Herod. And who gave him this title? Wasn't the Jews, wasn't God, it was the Roman Senate. The Roman Senate you know, bestowed upon him this title. But here's the thing, he wasn't even a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was not of Israel. He was not of the line of David. He certainly wasn't born king. He was appointed king by a pagan government body, not by God. So to go into his city and to say there is one who has been born king of the Jews is automatically a statement against Herod that you're not going to be king much longer. And what would make this even more startling is the reason these magi said they've come. Look at the end of verse 2 again. They say, for we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. They are here to bow down. Being from the east, it means they are coming from the powerful Parthian Empire, which was the constant threat and rival to the Romans. Okay, the Romans feared them. Herod feared them. And now you've got dignitaries from Parthia showing up saying there's a king who's been born and we're on his side. We're going to bow before him. Now, to the average Israelite, this would be shocking. Dignitaries from Parthia showing up in Jerusalem and saying the Messiah is born and we're here to bow to him. Gentiles want to bow and prostrate themselves before a Jewish child. That has never happened before. This is big stuff happening. So the arrival of the Magi to Jerusalem is a huge deal. It would have got everyone's attention. Now, one thing that is also interesting, just as a little historic nugget, is that in the Roman historians from the 2nd century 
Tacitus and Suetonius both say that in this part of the world, not Israel, but we're talking about like Turkey and that area and parts of the Middle East, there was an expectation by many peoples and many countries that a king was going to be born in Judea, a Jewish king that would rule the world. And so the Romans were terrified because it wasn't just the Jews who believed this. It was a lot of people that believed this. So the Jews hoped for it. Gentile empires were terrified of it. Why do you think the Romans were so quick to crush anybody that hinted they were the Messiah? Okay? But then you got these, these magi from Parthia who you think would be disturbed by it, but they're not worried. They're happy. They traveled over 600 miles on foot to see this child so they could worship him. So my point is, the anticipation of the Messiah was very high at this time. This was the fullness of the time when he finally came into the world. And, and how these magi knew that his birth came to pass, it subverts expectations. It does. It's not that they read the Bible and figured out prophecies from Daniel. It's because they saw a star while they were practicing astrology, while they were sinning. Astrology is something the Bible condemns. So why are they the ones who are seeking the king? And guys, let me just give you one word as the answer. Grace. Grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is always given only to those who don't deserve it. Nobody deserves the grace of God. In his grace, God made it to where these pagans were the first to know that the king has been born. Besides the shepherds that Luke tells us about, they would have saw him earlier. Now why? Why did God pick these magi? It's because the arrival of the king of Jews ultimately means salvation for the nations, for the Gentiles. And Matthew forecasts it here as the beginning and directly commands it at the end of his gospel. That's why it's here. That's why it's this way. Okay? So with all of that, we have this scene set. The Magi have arrived from the east. They've seen the Messiah's star. They know the one born king of the Jews has arrived. But they are not Jews. They do not possess the scriptures, so they don't know exactly where to find him. And that's why they showed up to Jerusalem to make this proclamation. They want someone to tell him where to find him. But their proclamation, as eager as we would be to hear it, I would hope, not everyone's eager to hear this proclamation and to help them in the way they want to be helped. And so in the next part of the text, we move to the second scene and we see Herod's reaction. And mixed up in his reaction will be the reactions of many others. And so let's look closer. Verse 3 tells us this. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. Okay? So again, these magi show up. The one born king of the Jews is here. Where is he? We don't know where to find him. We want to worship him. That is not the one. That is not the thing that the one who was not born king of the Jews wants to hear. It's not what Herod wants to hear. So what happens? It says when Herod heard this, he was overcome with joy. Nope, doesn't say that. It says he was deeply disturbed, which these words mean he was filled with anxiety. And it's obvious why. If the Messiah is here, Herod will not remain as king. The jig is up. And his sons will not reign as kings. And additionally, if Herod's enemies, like dignitaries from Parthia, are giving homage to this one who was born king, what chance does Herod have? So he hears of the arrival of the Messiah, and the only thing he could think about is his own power. His own power is now in jeopardy. The text also tells us he's not the only one filled with anxiety. He's not the only one deeply disturbed. It says, quote, and all Jerusalem with him. Now this is perplexing. Why would this be the case? Well, I guess we first have to figure out what's meant by all Jerusalem. 
Like you would think, because expectation was high, the average Jew would be excited that the Messiah has been born, right? Well, look, there's two ways we could understand this. It's possible that the word Jerusalem here is being used only to refer to the elites, okay? The elites of Jerusalem, Herod, his entourage, the religious leaders, and the others who are wealthy and powerful. It's very much like how we use the word Washington for Washington, D.C., right? We might say, you know, Washington wasted our money again, those morons in Washington, or we shouldn't call them morons, or Washington's just filled with corruption. Now, when we say that, Are we talking about every single resident in Washington, D.C.? We're not even talking about many of the residents there. We're talking about the politicians who are running the country. So it's very possible, and a lot of scholars think that's what Matthew's getting at here. Jerusalem refers to the establishment, the power establishment. And so, of course, they would be disturbed. Okay, All of the elites benefit from the status quo. They benefit from Herod's corruption. If the jig is up for Herod, then their gravy train is over. So, of course, they're going to be disturbed. But it is also possible he literally means everybody in Jerusalem. And so, if that's what he means, there's actually good reason why everybody would be deeply anxious or deeply worried. When Herod was a young ruler, he was reasonable. But in the last few years of his life, he went crazy. He was paranoid. And living in his city was really dangerous because of his paranoia. In the years leading up to our text, he had already ordered the execution of his wife, his mother-in-law, I guess he blamed them both, um, three of his own sons he had killed. Half of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling body, he took half of them, 35 of them, and executed them, and then took 300 court officials, people who run a city, and just killed them in public. Why? Paranoia. It was all due to paranoia. He was afraid he was going to lose his power. In addition to that, his pride reached a level of pure wretchedness. Knowing that a lot of people were going to be happy when he died, they would celebrate rather than mourn, he ordered that upon his death, half of the most important people in Jerusalem were all going to be dragged out into the center square and instantly killed. That way, nobody could celebrate on that day because everybody will have lost a loved one. He was so determined that people would cry on his death day, he would have a bunch of innocent people butchered. That's Herod. And that is his state of mind in 4, 5, and 4 BC. This is the kind of stuff he's doing, okay? And so pretty much if you lived in Jerusalem and you heard that there's a baby that's born king of the Jews, you might be kind of freaked out based on the way Herod's been acting lately. He's very much like a Joseph Stalin at this point, okay? And so it would cause some anxiety. And and it's not because they don't want the Messiah to come. It's because they're afraid that Herod would rather burn Jerusalem to the ground with everyone in it than see it go to its rightful ruler. That's what they're afraid of. And somebody might say, but the Messiah is here. He could save us. He's a baby. A lot can happen between now and when he hits you know, the age where he could rescue us. So, of course, with those reasons, they're going to be scared. It makes sense. It makes sense. And so I could see how both options, either it's talking about the elites or it's talking about the people, I could see how both could be true. So we see Herod's reaction, we see his cronies' reaction, we possibly see the people's reaction. Um, There's another group whose reaction we should see to, to this news. What about the religious leaders? What about those who study the Bible every day? These are the guys who should know more about the Messiah than anyone else. And since they study scripture all the time... Wouldn't they be the most excited people? I mean, we're in, we should be in the Bible all the time. If we saw Jesus coming on the clouds, wouldn't we be super excited? 
Well, you would think it would be that way for these guys, but not so much. See, Herod is taking serious this statement from the Magi, but he's a lame king of the Jews because he doesn't know the Jewish scriptures. He hears the Messiah might be born. He has no idea where because he's never opened the Bible a day in his life. So what he does is he assembles the religious experts to help get to the bottom of this. And this is where we see their reaction. Look at verse 4. It says, so he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Now, two groups of people here. The chief priests were the men who ran the temple. They were in charge of the actual worship of God in Israel. Now, the scribes, they're different. They were the experts who copied the scriptures, but they also taught it to others. They were the ones who knew the most about the scriptures. They could translate scripture into other languages. They could answer ethical questions. They could synthesize doctrinal beliefs of the day. These were the pastor scholars of the time, the scribes. So between the pastor scholars and the worship leaders of Israel, they should know where the Messiah would be born. And they do know. Look at verses 5 and 6. They answer. It says, In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I find this interesting. He asks them, Herod says, where's the Messiah going to be born? Without any hesitation, they give him the right answer, Bethlehem. It's going to be born in Bethlehem. And then off the top of their heads, they're able to quote the first part of Micah chapter 5, verse 2 from the prophet, and they merge it with the last part of 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. So off the top of their head, they're able to create a blend, a synthesis of scripture. Okay? The first part of Micah 5, 2 says, clearly the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Now, the wording is a little different from the Hebrew to what Matthew puts here. The Hebrew text says Bethlehem Ephrathah, okay? where Matthew substitutes it with Bethlehem of Judea. And the reason is, is pretty clear. There were two Bethlehems, actually, one in the north, not far from Nazareth, one in the south, five miles from Jerusalem. Okay, the one in the south is the one Boaz married Ruth in. It's the one that David was born in. It is the one that the Messiah is supposed to come from. Now, in Micah's time, you could say Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and everybody will know. It's the one in the south. In Matthew's time, people forgot that. And Herod doesn't know the Bible anyway. So he has to say Bethlehem, Judea. You know, just making it clear, we're not talking about the one up there. We're talking about the one right here. And then what they do... As they then, uh, they, they got the, the, the city right, Micah 5.2, and then they tell us what the, the coming one will do. 2 Samuel 5.2 ends by Israel acknowledging that God promised that David would be the ruler and shepherd over them. He will rule and, 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 uh, and shepherd my people Israel. Well, that's now applied to David's greater son, the Messiah. So really what they're saying is Bethlehem, this lowly and small village of no reputation, it now has the greatest reputation. By no means is it the smallest or weakest of the, the clans of Judah. Because out of you, it tells you why, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, that's the right answer. All oh, that's the right answer. What's interesting is the religious leaders, the experts know the answer, but they're absolutely unexcited about it. Some magi show up announcing he's been born. Their leader, Herod, asks them where. They simply quote a scripture and go back to their studies. They were totally indifferent to the announcement that the Messiah was here. That's just crazy. They, above everybody else, 
should have been the most excited, but they weren't. So with their indifference now described, the text moves us back from them to Herod. Verse 7 says this. It says, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. Now, this detail will be very important for next week's text. Herod's trying to find out, hey, when did you see the star? Because he's trying to estimate a window of time in which this baby could have been born. He's then going to broaden that window to two years. And you'll see what he does with that knowledge next time. Now, it tells us Herod secretly summoned the Magi. That lets you know he's up to no good. He has one of his paranoid schemes cooking in his head right now. And so he needs to keep it on the down low, right? So he wants to gather intel from these guys. But he also wants them to cooperate with him, okay? He wants them to help him. But he knows they're here to honor the child, not hurt the child. So he has to make them think he wants to honor the child as well. Very deceptive. Look at verse 8. It tells us he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. He's lying. This is just plain evil. Herod learned in, in his private meeting with the experts that if the Messiah is here, it's Bethlehem. So now he has the information the Magi want. He has something they need and he shares it with them as if he's helping them. I'm on your guys' side. Let me help you. Here you go. It's Bethlehem, just five to six miles from here. Go and worship him. You have my blessings. But do me a favor, my friends. When you find him, tell me exactly where he is, which house he's in, so that I, too, can go and worship him. Really, Herod's just making them do his legwork. If they're delusional, they're going to walk six miles for nothing. Okay, And then they're going to be like, oh, he's not there. That saves Herod a... 10 to 12 mile round trip, okay? But if the Messiah really is there and they're not delusional, now they will lead Herod right to this baby so he can kill it, so he could kill him. Evil people do things like this. They act like they're your friends. They even will help you. Herod helped them at first. They give you what you need and what you want at a moment. They get you on their side. That way later they could then get you to help them in their evil schemes and you might not even realize it. Okay? The Magi have just unknowingly become accomplices to a plot to kill the very child they are wanting to honor. And they don't even know it. This is why, loved ones, we're not supposed to be naive. We know the way the world works. We know how it is under sin. We're supposed to be shrewd, not naive. Okay? Otherwise, you will fall prey to guys like Herod and you'll fall prey to false teachers. Because false teachers do the same thing Herod did here. They'll use the same tactic. They'll tell you sweet things. They might even give you what you need in the moment. Might even pay a bill for you. And then later, they'll try to make you an accomplice in their heresy. The Magi fell for it. They didn't know better. They had good motives. And their good motives were being used against them to help someone that is evil. So just understand, that is how evil people work, okay? Don't fall for their, their, their traps. Don't fall for their, their intrigue and all that. See, the Magi are just happy that they now know where to go. They didn't realize the danger they're putting this child in. So that then brings us to the final part of the text. The Magi go to Bethlehem. In verse 9, we read this. It says, after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. So here the star comes back into play. 
And it's here that I think we could rule out any real star or comet. If you are looking to astronomers to solve this mystery for you, you're going to come out empty-handed. Because comets, stars, and planetary conjunctions do not move around in the sky, lead you to a village, and then stop right above a single house. Have you ever seen a star do that? You ever see a comet do that? I haven't. That's, that's not the way they work. Okay? And so, pretty much... Now, it would be different if, it, if the text said they saw a star and went in that direction and ended up at Bethlehem. Fine. We'd probably be looking for, for real stars or comets. But that's not what it said. Additionally, the star was visible to them when they were in the east. It was the sign that they needed to go to Jerusalem, but it doesn't tell us it led them to Jerusalem. They simply saw his star and then went to Jerusalem. Okay? It likely vanished. I think you have every reason to believe the star disappeared after they saw it. Why? Because right here it reappears. The Greek is pretty clear. Herod sends them on their way, and as they leave, it says, Behold, that's what the Greek says, Behold, the star they had seen at its rising. Like, oh, there it is. Right? Now the verb tenses are clear. The, the, star, the, the seeing of the star at its rising is actually in a tense called the aorist that just means it's a completed action in the past. That was done. They saw this in the past. They weren't still seeing it. Okay? And now all of a sudden, it's visible again. And it's not only visible, now they can follow it. It's leading them somewhere. It leads them over a house. Loved ones, this is, this is no star. This is, this is no star. This is either God himself visibly appearing to lead them, or it's an angel. And look, this is not without precedent. In the Old Testament, God led the people of Israel in the wilderness as a pillar of fire. Granted, it's not the same as a star, but it's be God's behavior was the same. As the pillar of fire, he would rise up and lead them and then stop over a place that they were meant to set up camp. Okay, so the star is doing something very similar. But it doesn't have to be God. It could easily be an angel. In the apocalyptic books like Daniel, Zechariah, Revelation, angels are often symbolically referred to as stars. And so God could have sent an angel that would first appear as a really bright light in the sky to get them to head to Jerusalem and then disappears. And then once they're on their way to Bethlehem, the star reappears and um, they, they follow it and it settles right over the right house. So I don't think you need to be looking for a literal star. And by the way, this might just help you with something completely un unrelated, but if you've been getting freaked out like every month when Fox News says, oh, more Air Force footage of UFOs, and you know, you see these little star-looking things bouncing around that defy physics and then disappear and vanish, 2,000 years ago, there's a document that seems to describe an angel doing that very thing to lead the Magi to where they're supposed to go. And we know there's fallen angels, so I'm just saying... Nobody's traveling across the universe just to look at us walk our pets and clean up. Anyway, never mind. They're not here to, 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 to do that. And there's just so many problems. Like, I remember I had to take a class on this. I don't, I'm going on a rabbit trail. I need to stop. Well, let me finish this thought. If you're flying 90% the speed of light and you hit just a gram of hydrogen, it's going to be like a 60-ton nuclear explosion. Nobody's getting here. These are demons. Anyhow, but in our text, we're seeing God lead these guys to the right place. That being said, back to the text, the stars now understood. It has fulfilled its purpose at this point. Now we can see their reaction in verse 10. In verse 10 it says, when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Again, this implies that it was not visible and then visible again, because it's when they saw the star, right? There's a time element to it. When they saw it, they're filled with joy. They know that the mission is now about to be a success, 
They're going to see the king. They're going to get to honor him. Mission is going to be, a, their mission is going to be accomplished. And so that's their reaction. It's joy. And the way that it talks about them having joy is a very Hebrew way of saying it. It says literally they rejoiced with great joy. Now that would sound redundant in English, but to a Hebrew mindset, that's how you say they were super joyful. How joyful? Super, super joyful. How joyful? Super, super, super joyful. They rejoiced with great joy. Okay, so it's like, all right, these guys are at the top level of rejoicing right now. And so, yeah, it's just emphasizing how happy they are. And, and keep in mind, this is a big contrast from Herod's paranoia and, and the religious leader's indifference. The Magi have joy. Well, they're going to act on their joy. Verse 11 tells us this. It says, entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, love of the king always leads to action. When they saw him, a mere child, they fell to their knees and worshiped. Somehow they knew he was the God-man. This is more than mere homage to a human king. This was worship of God, the king of kings. And listen, whenever there is worship, there is always something that is offered. Listen, I'm going to correct things. And you guys, for the most part, know better. But a lot of Christians don't. So let me correct this. Worship is not a feeling. Worship isn't even a posture of the heart. Now, both of those are involved. There is a feeling. There is a posture of the heart. But when you study worship in the Bible, worship is always an offering. Worship is an offering to God since he is worthy. The Christian life, according to Romans 12.1, our whole life is what's offered. Your whole life is supposed to be an act of worship. You're supposed to live entirely for God. So what that means is if your whole life is worship to God, if your whole life is an offering, then that makes the songs you sing an offering. It makes it when you tell others about Jesus, that's an offering. When you turn away from sin and temptation, that's an offering. When you read the word daily, that's an offering. Okay? When you are teaching others who believe more of the scripture so that they could grow, that is an offering. That is all worship unto God. When you give of your first fruits and your finances for the work of the kingdom, that is an offering. All these things are offering. And when you withhold your offering, any of these things, evangelizing, telling people about the same thing, telling your, your teaching others about Jesus, uh, singing the songs, when you withhold that stuff from God, you're withholding worship. And you might say, but, but, but I worship him in my heart. It doesn't work that way. You don't get to make up what worship is. He tells us what it is. If your heart is full of worship, then your hands and feet will be filled with offerings given by you to God. That's what worship is. And that's what we see with the Magi. So in the text, they're giving Jesus some amazing things. First, they bow before him. They give him their, their loyalty. But they also give him some amazing offerings. It says they give him, quote, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, look, we all know what gold is. It's the most, one of the most valuable precious metals. And back then, it was the symbol of ultimate value. Okay? So they gave him gold. Now, frankincense was a really expensive perfume. Very few people could afford it. And it was mainly used in the incense for worshiping God. Myrrh was also an expensive perfume, a little more affordable, but still really expensive, and that was used for usually burying people um, so that they don't stink as bad and, and stuff like that. And so all three of these items were outside of the financial means of the average Jew in the first century. Only the most wealthy could afford these, okay? These were the best and most valuable items of the ancient world. They were real treasures, and the Magi 
gave their best to this baby king. They gave their best. It is a sad testimony that many who belong to God struggle to give him their leftovers after he has given everything he has given to save us. And yet these guys, off of a star and seeing a baby, are able to give their best. And yet we give so little of ourselves to the Lord when he has shown us so much more than he has shown them. May we learn to give him our best. If these stargazing magi could give him the best of this world, we have no excuse. Now, before I move on from this, people often speculate about these three gifts. The fact that there's three gifts is why people think there were three magi. That is reasonable, but it's not necessary. Two men can give three gifts. Ten men could give three gifts. They could all pitch in. Okay? So we don't know. The gifts don't tell us how many magi there were. But ever since the early church, people have tried to give extra significance to the three gifts. Okay, so most famous was the early church father Irenaeus in the second century. He said the gold was for royalty, the frankincense was for divinity, and the myrrh was for burial. And so these three gifts signify who Jesus is, the divine human king who dies for us. It's beautiful. I want to cry when I read Irenaeus. The only problem is there's nothing in the text that hints to that. Theologically, it's true. Jesus is all that. But is that what the frank... Is that what the the gold, frankincense, and myrrh are alluding to? No. Again, Matthew is teaching us through typology. Okay, typology. And so what's this really about? You go back to the days of Solomon. Okay, the nations and the dignitaries of the world brought him gold, frankincense, and spices. There's multiple passages that say that. And so then the prophets looked back at what happened with Solomon and say it'll be even greater in the days of the Messiah. For example, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, looking forward to that day, said, Caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. Right? So they'll carry gold, frankincense. The the nations will. Right? They'll carry it to Israel. The land will be saturated with it. Psalm chapter 72 or Psalm 72 verses 10 and 11 speaks of the kings of the nations bringing all this tribute to the son of David and bowing before him. It's these passages taken together that Matthew is pulling from. See, he's presenting Jesus as a new Solomon. But even better, as foreigners came in the days of Solomon and gave golden spices, so too, even as a baby, are foreigners coming and giving this to Jesus, which paints a picture forward to the days when he returns and the whole world floods their gold and their spices into the presence of the Lord. That's what's happening here. What we're seeing with these three things is just a foretaste of what's going to come later. That is what Matthew's doing with this. And perhaps on a more practical level, I see no reason to doubt this, that since these were very valuable items, they would cover the living expenses of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus when they're in Egypt. I mean, they're going to need something, right? And so um, that only makes sense. So anyway, with that, okay, with that verse, the Magi have concluded their mission. They saw the king with their own eyes. They rejoiced in their heart. They worshiped him with their bowing and their offerings. And so likely they were going to go back to Herod. And tell him, hey, it's all true, and he's in this particular house. But God is going to step in and spare them of their naivety, and he's going to warn them to not go back to Herod. Look at verse 12. It says, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they return to their own country by another route. So Herod's plan gets foiled. The Magi return back to their country with God's peace and God's blessing. This will then lead us into the rest of the chapter because Herod's treachery isn't over. 
but that will have to wait until next time. Now, as we reflect then upon everything we've seen in the text, these 12 verses, I pray that the timeless truth of the text has now become easy to see. The coming of the Messiah and all that we read, it does demand a response from all people. The star of that prophecy that foretold his coming engendered an immediate response from the Magi. They traveled over 600 miles on foot on the off chance they might find this child king. 600 miles. They didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. 600 miles just for a glimpse. We have more than a glimpse of Jesus. We can see his completed work. We all have his inspired words in the Bible that we could treasure in our hearts and inscribe upon our minds. And yet even with that, many of us won't even walk 600 feet to our neighbor to tell them about our king. Yet they walked 600 miles just to see a glimpse. And then when they saw him, their love was not a, a mere feeling in their heart. It was that, but it was also action. Their blistered feet brought them there. Why the trouble? So that they can then fall on their knees and then on their face before him. Again, all for just a glimpse. They saw a baby. We have the scriptures. With the eye of our mind, we're able to imagine the glorified Son of Man blazing at the right hand of the Father. Do we ever fall on our face before him? Or is he just so unincredible to us? We have so much more than they did. So much more than a glimpse. They didn't only bow, but they worshiped him with offerings. These were the most valuable treasures. Again, they laid them down at the feet of a baby. How hard is it for us, though, to give our first fruits to God? How hard for us to give our service? How hard for us to plead with the lost? How hard for us to thwart the plans of the wicked like they did to Herod? For most of us in this context, it would be so much easier for us to do our calling than it was for them to do theirs. And yet, they, having so much less of Christ, did so much more when it was so much harder. It should not be that way, brothers and sisters. We can fire ourselves up. We can love our king. We can respond to him the right way. So yes, Jesus demands a response. The response of the Magi was belief. It was faith in Jesus. The response of the Magi was walking away from paganism 600 miles and walking to Jesus, even though the walk was far. The response of the Magi was worship of Jesus rather than worship of the false gods or the self-worship that we're all tempted towards. The response of the Magi was to give him their best. That is the right response. That is what saving faith looks like. That is the response of the saved. And there is only one response of the saved, and this is it. There's no other response other than true surrendering belief in Jesus that will lead to salvation. Every other response will only lead you to hell. Turning from our sins, which means to repent, and believing on Jesus with all of our heart is the only right response. And that's what we see with the Magi. But there are wrong responses. Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his own power. So Jesus made him anxious. And perhaps there's some who are here or some who are listening that are the same way. Jesus' existence may be a thorn in your side. The fact that he exists means he's the king and you are not. It means someone has claim over your life. Someone has the right to tell you what is right and wrong. Someone has the authority and the power to hold you accountable. And perhaps you hate that. Perhaps you hate it. The coming of Jesus means you can't make up your own rules about sexuality. The coming of Jesus means you don't get to declare your own identity against nature, against how God created us. The coming of Jesus doesn't mean you get to customize your own worship of God and call him what you want, name him what you want, and turn him into statues or whatever and do what you want. No, it's not Burger King. It's not your way. 
Okay, that's not how it is. The fact that Jesus exists means there is God and we are to follow and worship God as he is. Okay, and proclaim him as he is. A lot of people don't like that. So for many, Jesus makes them anxious. They want him dead. They want him to disappear. Herod tried. We're going to read that next time, but he failed. Later, the leaders of Israel and the Romans do conspire and they do kill him on the cross. But on the third day, he walks out with indestructible life. You cannot make him go away. So some, because they can't make him go away, want to make his messengers go away. Shut us up and you don't have to think about him. You know, make, make it to where we're ostracized and, and can't speak the truth. Call the truth hate speech or whatever you want to call it. So that way you don't have to picture or think about the one that you're being called to respond to. Listen, you only delay the inevitable. An inescapable day is coming where you will stand before him. He will come in glory, blazing glory. His eyes are like fire. And if you have the response of Herod, you'll be condemned for all eternity. So we see surrendering belief. We see fearful rage. Two responses. But there is a third response. A third response that I think is even more tempting and more dangerous and one that we are more prone to fall for. And that third response is indifference. The religious leaders got so used to God and so used to his word that by the time the promise arrived, they didn't even care. They were so in love with this world. Okay, They didn't care. Is it possible that you've responded to religion rather than the Savior? Is it possible that you love theology and hate the theos, the God behind the theology? Is it possible that you read your Bible and you say your scripted prayers all the while you have a heart that's entirely distant from Jesus? That is dangerous. It's dangerous because it deceives you into thinking you belong to him when you don't. That's what's scary. It makes you think you're a good person. Because you read the right words and, and on the surface you, you do some of the things that, that look right. But you don't know him if you're indifferent to him. You just don't. So the solution is stop going through the motions. Start actually loving him. Love the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with everything you've got. Turn away from your sins. Realize you're a sinner that needed saving so you'll be thankful to him. Believe on him with the whole heart and then watch what happens to all that scripture you've been reading your whole life. It's useless to you right now if you're indifferent. But if Christ gets a hold of you, all that scripture now becomes a mighty weapon. Think of Paul the Apostle. All that he knew, how useless it was until he met the Lord. And then he was a force to be unleashed on this world that brought many sons to glory. So that could be you too if you've been indifferent. If you've been in the scripture but you've been indifferent, stop. Give him your life today. And watch what he can and will do through you. So those are the three responses that our text shows. Everyone here is responding in one of these three ways. There is not a fourth way or a fifth way. It is either belief or it is hatred or it is indifference. Those are the three. So as believers, we who believe, let's cling ever more to this first response to belief. Let's do so in a way that makes the Magi look like amateurs because they were amateurs. Don't let your race end knowing they did so much more with so less. No, we are full of the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God. We're, again, we're filled with the spirit. We're filled with truth. Let's live and let's continue the race and plow forward, worshiping our king with all of our heart every day. If there's any unbelievers, I just ask you, how shall you respond? Indifference, rageful fear, or belief that will save you. If you stay with the other two options, you will be doomed. And you might think, I got time, I'll sow my wild oats, and, and then I'll come to him later. 
(laughs) You don't know how much time you have. You have no control over that. Today is the day of salvation. Today is one day what we could guarantee he is calling and he is summoning. That day, there might not be another one. So believe on Jesus. Turn away from your sins. Receive Jesus as Lord. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead and you'll be saved. If you have any questions about this, come talk to me, any of the leaders here, and we'll gladly walk you through it. Okay, what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then I'm going to give the the communion warning, and then the worship team is going to come up, sing the song, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. So let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you.